Welcome back to the Admissions Uncovered podcast. I usually say it's the college admissions podcast for the students, by the students, but I can't say the by the students part today and in the future because now I'm joined and hopefully a lot more by Don Gonzalez, who some of you may know from a very, very early episode of the podcast, but he was um, a teacher and admin from my high school. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Gonzalez. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be part of it. Do I get to call you Don now? Is that a thing I can do? If you feel comfortable doing that, you know, it's it's always been, it's funny to me. It's my younger students that feel more comfortable doing that. And my students from way back who are now in their 30s and have children still call me Mr. G or Mr. Gonzalez. They can't bring themselves <laughs> to call me Don. I don't think I'd call you Don. I think I'll just keep calling you Gonzalez without the mister. I'm fine with that. That's the way I call all my teachers. Yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that's kind of normal because that's the way the teachers talk to each other. That's the way admin talks to each other. And it honestly, it's the way I talk to people when I was in the military. Everybody's last name, and I just kind of grew accustomed to that. So, oh, let me quickly plug the link to your old episode because I think it's a pretty good episode. It's um, admissionsuncovered.com slash 322. And I think we talked about teacher rec letters, how to get good ones, which teachers to select, all that good stuff. So if you're looking for some stuff on teacher rec letters, go to that episode or look in the show notes down below. You know, like I think the cool thing that you bring is, you know, before it was me talking to Dominic and Neve originally, who were then high school juniors about to do college admissions. And then I did a lot of like guest episodes um, that were a lot with students and things like that. Um, and now I think we can talk about college admissions from this completely different angle, which is how admins approach it, how like schools and systems approach it, and something kind of more broad and, and maybe like more meta. So, you know, my vision for it is that, you know, the times that you come back to Dallas and we have opportunities to talk that, you know, this is something that you and I both share an interest in. And just kind of the intersection of those sort of, you know, your life as a college student and my continued frustrations about the lack of resources um, at our school in particular. And I seem to hear this from other schools as well, that there's a tremendous need out there, not only from the student standpoint, but from the teacher standpoint, the counselor standpoint. There's a lot going, and I can only speak to public schools because that's all I've ever worked in that people just don't know what they're doing. It's a shot yeah. in the dark. Well, you know, I think part of that is that, you know, this podcast will obviously still be talking about how to get into college and some of the mechanics, but I think, you know, it'll be imbued with kind of all these more meta questions about, yeah, like this is what you need to do in, to get into college, but here's what maybe teachers and counselors and systems can do better. And and like what that makes me think of is just like my experience going through high school and I was very lucky to like had to have parents who kind of emphasized very early on you know you got to go to college got to go to a good college and so knowing how to do that you know like that was a day one type of thing got to do extracurriculars you know grades are obviously must have but you got to do all these leadershipy type things as well and I actually don't think other students got that message I really don't like I think everybody gets good grades but I think the extracurricular activity and the leadership angle is kind of like dropped until it's it's too late. Well, one of 
you know, I don't think we did this when you were a student, and I guess it's been what just two years yeah, removed, two or years three years now. removed. So, in the last few years, you know, we started an orientation camp as students no, you are had coming that. in. You had that with me, and too. one of okay. Did we do the first one when you were president of NHS? Well, no, Aaliyah, um, the president before me. The, yeah. the year before? Okay, I, I'm losing track of time. But um, one of the things that we try to do from the very beginning is start talking to them about college. And so one of the sessions that I give is all based off of Angela Duckworth's book on grit. And there's a chapter in there that she talks about extracurricular activities. And I think she references it as the Harvard model that um, I always call it the two-by-two two model. And it may, I'm, it may not be Harvard's model. I can't remember. But the idea of having two or more, of having two, two, not, you know, like a lot of people think I've got to have 40 different extracurricular activities. And I really stress the need for quality over quantity. And then what Duckworth said in her book is that there are two ways to evaluate quality, and that's demonstrated growth. Like two or more years in an activity is, is part one, and then number two is developing leadership, and the other one is like, you know, being like you and going from just being, you know, a regular debater, or maybe when you're a freshman, to being, you know, a nationally ranked debater by the time you're a senior. So that sort of thing. So that's something that we start with them early on and start talking to them about, you know, at our school, you know, I think the college board actually has a pretty decent list of what you're supposed to do your freshman year. And they may even have it as an infographic now, what you're supposed to do as a freshman, what you're supposed to do as a sophomore, and et cetera. But what I think the problem is, is that even AP teachers, I don't think, read that and talk about it. You have like one voice in the darkness talking about it, and it's got to be the entire school culture in order for you, for you not to lose kids. What I was starting to tell you off air is that my concern at our school is that the kids at the very top, for the most part, and the kids at the very bottom, for the most part, are the ones that get served. It's the kids in the middle who don't get served. And those are the ones that are likely to fall to the cracks and not know what's available to them. You know, from not having somebody in their ear from the very beginning telling them what they need to do for college to getting towards the end and not knowing how to make decisions or how to ask the right questions. They don't even know what questions to ask. And unfortunately, when they go to their teachers, sometimes they're, they're getting bad information. And I think bad information is worse than no information. I think, no, I think I, I think the definitely the teacher point is really true. I've, in, in my experience, I've had teachers who just say that not even, you know, obviously bad information, very bad, uh, but give like no effort at all and think that college admissions is kind of beyond the scope of their job or their job description. And I've not read like a teacher job description from Dallas ISD. So maybe it's true that like future plans and admissions counseling and, and job counseling or whatever is like actually just not in their job description. But it seems like an important thing just to know when your student asks you a question about it to at least either have like a reasonable answer or really do try to make sure that student gets referred to like the the actual college counselor or the counselor of that school i've had so many times where 
I don't think I've like, I'd, I've never really asked the question like, oh, well, I guess I don't have an answer. I can never find it. But I definitely know other students who have come to like really like certain teachers have asked questions and then have gotten nothing from those teachers. So I think it's also a part about making this, like you said, part of the culture, but also part of people's real jobs is that, yes, you get to teach math. Yes, you get to teach English, but you also have to like help your students with college and with your future plans too. I think you're right. I think that 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 has to be a discussion that's had with teachers from the very beginning when they're going through the interview process of of either being asked questions about what they think about the college process themselves. Uh, maybe some of the younger teachers can remember or uh, most definitely at the point where they're actually being hired and they're being told what their responsibilities are, that it's understood that that's part of the responsibility that you know, in the individual school, it's not just the counselor or the so-called uh, college advisor, because that's that's not enough. You know, I don't know what the typical workload is at a regular at a regular high school, but like in our school, we have almost five hundred students for one counselor, and we we have a college advisor, but she's shared with uh, another school, so. She's got a you know a load of close to two hundred seniors. I don't know how many the other school has now, but our school what we've got one hundred twenty five graduating. So yeah, so close to two hundred. And I know that's not huge compared to some of these big high schools, but that's a lot of that's a lot of essays to be going through and whatnot. One person can't do it themselves, and then when you bring in. There's just got to be a better way because you know what happens, and I think you've talked about this before, is you have that one teacher that is the popular teacher that everybody goes and asks for a rec letter, and then they get overworked, or they have to be put in a situation where they they either A, have to say no to somebody that they wish they didn't have to say no, or worse, they say yes to a kid that they shouldn't have said yes to, and you know they violate their own rules of how they write their letters and they write a bad letter so it's you know there's got to there's got to be a better way to spread it around and make sure that everybody is part of the team everybody's got to be part of the college advising yeah i mean like i think without that kind of attitude you just can't do it well at least because of how individual college admissions counseling and just generally counseling is right like i very early on knew that I really like prestige. I wanted to go to an Ivy League school. I've said this many times. It's just like what I wanted. Um, and so the counseling I needed was is, is very different than someone who didn't really care about that. It's just, I want to go to UT. That's all I want. Um, something very different also from maybe someone who wants a similar tier of school that I wanted to get into, but wanted to be an engineer rather than like a econ poli-sci type like me. And so what that means is that you really need individual teachers pushing students to do the activities and the classes that fit their interests. And you don't get that without some type of personal knowledge and, and like interest in that kid. So no, no, like I, I can imagine systems that would let you do that, right? Like each kid is inside assigned like a a coach or something or or like a guide teacher yes. maybe because what I've tried to do over the years I've just kind of ragtagged it by just saying to myself when I coached debate it was going to be the debaters and 
now that I split my duties and have part of my duties being coaching a mock trial team, mock trial gets are my yeah. responsibility. But not everybody does that. And, you know, like, the the thing that you were just talking about is interest. You know, we, we joked about this uh, when we were having lunch that time, that you have a student that they're a senior and they're saying they're interested <laughs> in robotics, but they've never done anything with it during the summer. You know, they haven't gone to robotics camp or they haven't, you know, done work at a university or anything like that. And it's like, there's no demonstrated interest in that, be bad. In that thing that there's, yes. And then they're disappointed when things don't work out the way they want them to. Yeah. And I, I th- but I feel like, I think like, I just have to like say is sometimes it's just very hard. Like I, I want to blame the kid. I'm like, you should have just like, obviously this is bad, but, but I say that kind of like knowing that it's bad and kind of knowing some of the ins and out of this process. It's just not the case that it's obvious. Um, especially if a kid isn't like given options and like, this is actually one of the options, right? If you just like send a kid in blindfolded, of course, like nine out of the 10 times they're going to end up tripping and stumbling. I don't, I don't think that's like totally unreasonable. I don't know. I think, I think, I guess, I guess the point I'm trying to get at is that like, I feel like our school was very special in that a lot of kids just ended up in one of three activities. And you had teachers, I think, who felt fairly responsible for the kids in their club. Um, but, but, you know, before I went to the law magnet, I came from Allen ISD, which is, if you don't know, it's like this massive high school in the suburbs of Dallas, like a thousand kids per grade, crazy amounts of, of like crazy ratios of kids per counselor, kids per teacher. And it was just, in fact, not true that each person kind of had like a teacher they bonded with or an activity they really invested in. Like, I think I think even if you have really good extracurricular leaders who really invest in their kids college, um, you know, planning and everything, you still got to get those kids in extracurriculars at first. I think and I think that's like the original challenge, I guess. So in saying that, one of my goals would be as we move forward in partnering up or you adding me as a perpetual guest or co-host, <laughs> whatever you want to call me, is that we attract some teachers yeah. who are listening. Because I think that every if campuses aren't going to have systems in place as part of district policy, I don't see that happening. I think that most districts think, oh, well, we have a college counselor, we have a college advisor, and we have a high school counselor for each grade, we have satisfied our needs. And that's just not true. And I think what, what each, if it starts with just one person, it's, you know, very grassroots. If you have somebody that's really motivated uh, by it, and young or old, you know, I'm I'm not the youngest teacher at my school. I'm actually Well, you're about to retire. Oldest. But, yeah, well, yeah, in a couple of years, thanks. But, you know, somebody's got to be the one that's pushing yeah. the agenda. And, you know, like one of the things that I've done, and part of it is because of the position I'm in, since I'm in now in a pseudo administrative position, is that I push for every time we have professional development that some of it is geared towards college readiness. You know, like I've done, I've taught teachers how to do rec letters and, you know, encourage them to do more than, you know, just because you heard me talk about it for 30 minutes or an hour doesn't preclude you from participating in the QuestBridge webinars, for example. That's how I taught myself. You know, I wanted to get better at my rec letters because I knew they weren't good enough. And so what did I do? I just 
you know, signed up for webinars. And every time QuestBridge sends me another webinar, if I have time, I'll sit and watch it live. And if not, I'll just watch it on YouTube when it posts up. Just doing little things like that and really investing in their own education, going out and buying books and reading about things that are related to college readiness. So, but I, I think it can start with just one person. If you sit around and wait for the districts to do it, it's not going to happen. Hey, it's Michael here. I know you're listening to this podcast because you or someone you know wants to go to a good college. The, the first step to doing that is getting good test scores, ACT and SAT scores. And the reason why is because that kind of sets the baseline at which you can apply. You're not going to get into Harvard with a 900. Sorry, you're just probably not going to get in there. Now, I actually do a lot of work in test prep tutoring. Uh, I have a separate business called Gao Admissions. You can go to the website at gaoadmissions.com. There's going to be a link on the website if you're listening to the podcast on the website. And basically, I help students find their own test prep strategies. So my process is that I first give my students a diagnostic test. Y'all will take it, um, and then we'll come back together and see what types of questions you're missing the most. If you're missing more geometry than algebra, we know to focus on geometry. But more importantly than that, I'll ask you a series of guided questions that I've used for all of my students in the past, for the past two years I've been doing this, um, to figure out what your key challenges are. That way we can come up with solutions just for you. And on average, I've seen my students increase their SAT scores by 100 to 150 points, the ACT four or five points on average, um, which means it'd be more or less than that. I think that this is a really good thing to start um, and finish by the end of your junior year. If you're younger than that, I think starting early is definitely a good idea just because the PSAT is also a really important test. Uh, the PSAT, after all, is what can qualify you for National Merit Scholarship consideration. And so if you're there and you're ready to start tutoring, please head over to gaoadmissions.com. That's G-A-O admissions.com. Scroll to the bottom and shoot me an email and I'll uh, talk to you more about how to get started. Thanks so much. And uh, now let's get back to the show. I think I think part of that's definitely tr like one part that I think was definitely, definitely true is teacher rec letters because even if you don't think it's your job to like, you know, you know, handhold a kid into their dream college or like make sure that kid is doing every single thing correctly, it is at the very least your job when asked to write a recommendation letter to actually write a decent recommendation letter. And like I've seen very bad recommendation letters. I had a student this year who went to a school where the teacher said, I can only use a template for you because I think it would be unfair to add personal elements because not every student might have those personal elements. I might not have personal stories for each student, which is this absurd thing and results in pro forma like rec letters for, for everybody in that school. Like I, yeah, this is, that's I mean, crazy. this is a kid I liked a lot, too. And so, I mean, it gets me very upset. It's just, I don't know. S like, stories like those make me very mad at certain teachers. Like, just take an hour of your time to Google it, and your rec letters will at least be, you know, a little bit better.
And, you know, I don't, I don't want to bag on all teachers, but I think that, that that's part of the challenge. And, you know, it comes with the fact that they've got so much professional development that they have to do. They have so much grading that a lot of them aren't self-motivated to go do that extra thing. But, you know, like my experience has been that, you know, not to belabor the point about rec letters, but to use that as an example is that they just don't know. Like they'll spend they'll spend a paragraph or two talking about things that are yeah, in the transcript. Yeah, right? They're GPA. And you know what? I've got to be honest. I went back, you know, I have saved pretty much every letter I've ever written since I've been a teacher. And I reference some of them. A lot of times I'll reference them to if I see similarities between kids kind of inspire me to start getting the writing going. And ooh, the other day I, I, you know, when I was, I guess there was a January 15th deadline. I was running, I was running a rec letter for that. And I went back and looked at a, a letter that I'd written for a similar student. And I was like, I cannot believe I wrote this. Was it but that bad? I didn't bad? know. And it was pretty bad. I, I, I did the exact same thing. I spent, you know, a paragraph introducing my relationship with the kid, which yeah. I think is kind of normal. How do you know the kid sort of thing? But then I did a whole paragraph of like their grades and their rank and all of that, which was a waste of space. <laughs> but I didn't know. So I think I think that thing, just like I don't know, is is another thing that's not necessarily the fault of the total fault of teachers and students, because part of this is just like college admissions is this crazy black box where colleges don't tell you what exactly what they're looking for at all. No, you're absolutely right. right? I was yeah. it's it's a guessing game a lot of times, too, you know, like. Tell me what it is yeah. that you want, like I, I, I obviously give you know, like I do individually, individual college counseling, I do this podcast. So I have very general thoughts and and I think fairly good advice, you know, (laughs) I hope so at least for how to get into college. But, but part of it is just that uh, sometimes you just don't know and you have to like ballpark it. Um, Well, but that's, but you saying that reminds me of another thing that I I don't think that we do a good enough job of. And that is, particularly when you start talking to students that are applying to those tier one elite elite schools is you can do everything right and still not get into the school that you want to get into. And that's just the nature of the process. And I, I don't think that we do a good enough job of prepping students for the fact that even great students like you are going to get some yeah. amount of failure and and dealing with that because this year i saw my students stress when the uh, early decision and early action decisions were coming out was yeah it was awful i had one girl that spent the entire saturday crying Aww. You know, just didn't even go to work. She had a part-time job. She didn't go to work. And she's one of my strongest students. And so it's it's definitely a stressful situation. And I think it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Worse. So I, I think that's part of it, too. You know, that's something that I've shifted my focus to this year is what what students can do in terms of self-care as they go through the process, like being more mindful uh, and 
and preparing themselves for the fact that no one, you know, you get to read stories. Yes, there are people that this happens to, but most people aren't going to get into 100% of the schools that they're applying to. And, you know, most of us aren't fortunate enough to go to our yeah. top choice school. We have, you know, some of us might even get into our top choice school and not be able to afford to go because the financial aid package just isn't the right package. And so that's part of I it. Think, no, I think like that definitely like counseling, counseling aspect of it is something that I don't think we've talked about a lot, but I think is super crucial um, just because, you know, like the admissions rates are just going to keep going down. They're not going up anytime soon. <laughs> More people are yeah. going to apply these colleges, despite you know sitting on billions of dollars and dollars in their endowment, are not going to expand their class or make more dorms or hire more professors. It's just not in their interests, right? They want education to be treated as a luxury brand so they can keep charging exorbitant prices um, by keeping it kind of elite and limited. And you know, I have a lot of thoughts about how maybe we should use our endowments better. Um, but but I think definitely like having and if you're a student listening to this um and l waiting for decisions remembering that your individual actions do not actually matter that much in a system that you don't have a lot of control over how it generally works like obviously you want to do the best you can you don't just want to like be fatalistic and be like yeah well i guess i'm never gonna get in but you also gotta keep in mind that <laughs> you know if you don't get in it's probably not your fault it's probably not not like anything you could have had control over. Yeah, you said something in that process about the huge endowments. It's, you know, I think that's a great subject for conversation. I actually think Malcolm Gladwell has has talked about this in, in one of his revisionist history uh, episodes where he talks about how you've got these schools with these huge yeah. endowments. They could really afford to just pretty much let a good chunk of students go to yeah. school for oh, free. Absolutely. And yet, and yet they don't. And, you know, and also, like, I, I think about this every year in December when I get the phone calls and the emails and the letters from my old college asking me <laughs> to send money. And I'm like, I already gave you money when I paid for my tuition. And you have, you know, it's just, and I know that they have, a, you know, a fairly large endowment and they have very wealthy people that donate money to the school and it's just you know because it, it's just to me the saddest thing that i've seen are are students that get in to schools that they really wanted to go to and then they can't afford yeah to go to school there last year i had a student get into nyu oh. and she got into their film oh program she couldn't yeah. go and she couldn't go and this year, I have a student from one of the other schools that's in my philosophy class who just found out uh, Thursday that she got into Caltech. Hey, whoa. Yes, and she's worried about getting it paid. And I said, girl. got to go to Caltech. We'll figure out how to. Yeah, we got to figure out how to get it paid. You know, we just got to trust, you know, as many little uh, scholarships. And I don't know how much you've talked about that to these, the, the little private scholarships that are out there that you know, um, those add up oh, and how important sure. it is to apply for those. Uh, I think some people are like, well, why am I going to spend my time, uh, writing an essay for a, a $3,000 scholarship? Well, those things start to add up and you'd be surprised at how you can just 
reuse the same essay for different things. And a lot of those scholarships will give the money directly yeah, to so, the student. Uh, so it's also just pocket change for you if you already find other ways, bigger ways to pay for college. Yeah. I'm Like, I won't complain so, about $1,000 anyway. in my bank account, you know, in case anybody wants to send any my way. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know what the experience is now, but I know when I went to school that I had at least one or two private scholarships that got paid directly to the school, and they just adjusted my yeah. school aid. So the school just didn't give me as much; they just absorbed that. So it's like, what was the point? And I actually made that argument to one of the scholarships, and they started paying me directly the scholarship yeah. some like columbia definitely still does that um it it basically the technical ter- like thinking of it is it, it decreases your student contribution um but it keeps everything else the same so if you know i i have to contribute let's say two thousand two hundred dollars to columbia if i get a scholarship of three thousand dollars then that eight hundred dollar surplus columbia is going to take away from the columbia grant is their logic i don't think it makes a lot of sense but it's how they work so, yeah. So if you want small private scholarships, try to get them, uh, try to look for ones that'll give you the money directly. It'll just be better off in, in all ways. But I think, I think just like broadly paying for college is something that we have not talked much about just because um, it's just, it's, I'm, I've been very lucky that's not been something that's the central focus of my thinking about college admissions. And that's just because like I have great parents and, and like we're extraordinarily lucky and well off. Um, I think there's a really interesting like policy conversation to be had about government policy, you know, like Bernie and Hall's like free college stuff. I know you have thoughts about that, um, uh, but even more like incremental things. No, I mean, you're absolutely right because there, there's gotta be a center. I think there is a center to ha- for that discussion to me, uh, center yeah. ground, because, you know, I think that there is a point between, not helping anybody and giving everybody free. You know, like, it was disturbing to me that this was in the news in the last two months or so, that people that thought that, you know, they wouldn't work for nonprofits or they went and worked for Title I schools thinking they would get all or part of their student loans forgiven, and 99% of them are being denied. So I think we need to relook at... You know, my idea has always been connecting student loan forgiveness to something like uh, Job Corps or something like that, where you're doing some other sort of service. It doesn't have to be military service. It can be something like Job Corps. And if you can demonstrate that you do that, that, you know, that earns you some sort of loan forgiveness. And I don't hear anybody talking about anything like that. Yeah, I think. No, I I read that same story about the Trump administration doing that. And it's just insane because like all of these people were promised something by the government that is now just being like poof like no more no more um and i i think that's particularly egregious but i think there's like i mean i i think about a lot about um refinancing student loan debt as like one of the kind of modest incremental reforms that have been talked about this is also one of the kind of crazy things um Every type of other debt you have, you can refinance, right? If you, you know, find a better term for your mortgage, you can refinance that. Car loans, you can do that. You can file for bankruptcy and all these things kind of um, either go away or get like reduced or there's a better payment plan. 
um, except for one type of debt, which is student loan debt. Like you can't refinance it most of the time. Um, it doesn't go away in bankruptcy. Although there was one case recently in which that just happened. It was oh, really? a landmark case where the student loan debt was discharged. It's, I can't remember what state it was in. I, I don't remember if it was a state court or a federal court of a particular district. Well, that's actually it. really, I mean, that, I really like that. Yeah, that's, that's something worth talking about in the, in the context of the bigger picture of financing yeah, school yeah. from a policy standpoint. And I think standpoint. even from, even from like a business standpoint, there are such cool models that are emerging. So there's this thing called ISAs, um, income share agreements, that basically will pay for a, a student's um, university and paying it back. The student pays it back. Um, by agreeing to give up a percent of their income for X number of years out of school. And so if they don't make more than a certain amount, they pay nothing. And um, it could end up being a very good deal for the issuer of the ISA, obviously, if the student ends up being a banker, like some really, really you know fancy job with a lot of money. Ah, so it's like investing in somebody's exactly. potential future. So this isn't the indentured servant thing where... I pay for you to go to college, but then you have to work for me for X number of years until you pay off what I. No, that's right? that's a, a thing. thing. I think some like lefty, like I'm like people who like listen to this podcast know I'm like I'm Elizabeth Warren fan. I'm a liberal, but there's definitely some people on like my side who think it, who think ISAs are still indentured servitude. Um, but to me, like there's a big difference because. Now, like, the issuer of the ISA wants that kid to do really well because then they both do really well. Right. And that's yeah. capitalism. It's like an align, like a perfect alignment <laughs> of interests. It's so, it's very cool. Yes, yes. If you do better, my investment pays yeah. off more. And, yeah, I mean, I have many more thoughts about this. But, but yes, I think we should, we should definitely talk more about paying for college, too. Okay. I know that the podcast is primarily about college admissions, but... And maybe I missed it, but life after you get into college, like what to expect when you get there, the orientation and all of that. Because I know, for example, that in my case, and this was a long time ago, over 30 years ago, that I was the first person in my entire family on both sides to ever go to college. So I had no idea what to expect. You know, everything from, you know, not knowing how to how to drop classes or how many classes I should take in order to stay as a, as a full-time yeah. student. And, and even the social aspects of the college life, because I really do think that that's an important part of the college experience, that there has to be a social sure. aspect to it too. So I'd be interested to in have conversations about that. Um, especially when you start getting towards the end of the school year and past the regular part of admissions when things are kind of dying down a little bit to introduce some of those topics i think those might be interesting i think hopefully people would find those yeah i think that's definitely true and i i think like the other thing that makes me think of is is thinking about the work people do during college admissions and connecting that to kind of pre-college planning and thinking about what to do in college because in my opinion if you do college admissions correctly you kind of create this like really coherent story of who you are. Like you really get to know like what you are actually interested in and what you want to do. And I think that is not something that just gets you into college. That's something useful for just thinking about what you want to do in college and what you want to do after college. Right. So like for me, like I, I thought a lot about what I learned in debate 
and like living in suburban Allen and then commuting to downtown, you know, like a little south of downtown Dallas and like what that made me think about my politics and what that made me think about like inequality and all those things like have made have like made me think about what I want to do in college. Like now I work with a nonprofit called Matriculate that helps low income students um, get into college, right? College admissions counseling for low income folk. Um, it's affected my coursework. Like I'm thinking about taking classes that are about like the the inequalities in economics and education. There's a class called like inequal. There's economic inequalities in education that I want to take, right? And so I think you know trying to connect college admissions more broadly to like what you want to do with your life is I think another thing that you can think about. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting conversation. Because I think I have a different view about that than you do as an Ooh. old man. Ooh. Generational divides. Um. Well, I definitely have a different perspective. You know, as someone who had my whole life planned out for myself when at like the age of seven, it went a completely different trajectory. Yeah. But that's not to say that the things that you do right now don't inform or form the things that you do later on yeah. in life. I think that would be a really interesting yeah, conversation. I think that's, I think also just like the importance of college, like from, I mean, you're like, to me, it's the most important thing right now because I'm in it. Like, I can't imagine not being a college dude, like what I would be doing otherwise. Um, but I think just like thinking about situating college's importance within like an entire like 80, like, like, you know, like a full lifetime, you know, and, and what does college actually like four years actually mean um to like the re the future because like a lot of people i think think like ah oh, college is like the most important time it's going to define everything it's certainly what people say to themselves during college admissions and whether that's true or not i think is, is like yet to be seen hey did you guys ever have a episode talking about gap years because there seems to be at least from what i've seen there's a growing trend of deferring people to spring uh acceptance rather yeah. than just completely uh, rejecting them and students having to decide what they're going to do with that semester, whether they go to community college or go to a local college or what they're going to do. Did y'all cover anything like in I previous episodes? I don't. I remember talking about it, in fact, wanting to interview a friend of mine who's on a gap year, but I don't think it ever happened. So that might be interesting because there may yeah. be people that listen to the show that that, that happens to. And, you know, the different options that they have available. Oh, to yeah, them. for sure. I think, I mean, the like the like the segue like that makes me think about is because that case, I think, is like the Harvard Z list case um, where you're deferred into the spring or, or even the next year. Um, and right. that often happens because often happens with very rich legacy kids in, in Harvard's case, at least. Um so I think, I think like that just like makes me think about some, I guess like some of the stuff that's an underlying, maybe the, the conversation about lack of resources and certainly public schools for college admissions about like the role money plays in all of this too. Um, right. But I think just also like gap years would be interesting too, because there's also now a lot of programs that are just designed to help people have really good gap years. All right. Well, it sounds like we've got a pretty good number of topics to cover in the coming weeks. I like it. I think it's more meta. I think it's, it's broader than just what, you know, I've done before. I think it'll make it a lot more interesting. Well, I hope so.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Admissions Uncovered podcast. I'm really excited about what we're doing here. We're, we're making a little bit of change, as, as you know, this episode kind of showed. Don Gonzalez is coming on. We're going to be talking about some new topics, maybe more systems-oriented, the structure of college admissions, as well as the topics we've always been talking about, how to get into college. And so if you like the slightly new direction this podcast is going, please subscribe. Um, that way you get all our new episodes right in your feed whenever we release them. You can do that by going to bit.ly slash aupodapple if you are on an Apple device. Um, that way it'll take you to iTunes and subscribe there. If you are on Android, you can go to bit.ly slash aupoddroid. That way you can download a podcast app and subscribe there. If you're on the website, I would love for you to get on your phone and, and download a podcast app. That way it'll pop up on your phone and you can listen to it whenever. And if you want to do that, you can go to any of the links above. Apple, it's bit.ly slash aupodapple. On Android, it's bit.ly slash aupoddroid. So please, please subscribe. You'll get the new episodes right in your feed. It'll be the most fashionable among the Admissions Uncovered listenership. And I will see you next week.